Hi y'all, I'm Marisa Zapata, and this is the podcast where we examine homelessness by talking to researchers and experts, who of course include people with lived experience of homelessness, to understand what we're missing in the headlines and sound bites. In each episode, we will help clear up misconceptions about homelessness and to answer what it would take to prevent and end homelessness in Portland and beyond. Who am I? I'm an associate professor of land use planning at Portland State University and director of PSU's Homelessness Research and Action Collaborative, a research center dedicated to reducing and preventing homelessness, where we lift up the experiences and perspectives of people of color. In this episode, Laquita Lamford is a community health worker, activist, and grassroots organizer. She has worked for several Portland area nonprofits. She is also the lead visionary of the Afro-Village Movement, which strives to build a healing space for communities of color and will be Portland's first village for Black community members experiencing homelessness. I am so glad that you're here with us today, and I'm looking forward to you sharing knowledge with me and with our listeners about your experiences working in housing and homelessness in particular. If you could just start off telling us a little bit about yourself. Yes, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are on the world, folks. Um, I'm really excited about being here. Thank you for this invitation. My name is Laquita Lanford. That's L-A-Q-U-I-D-A-L-A-N-D-F-O-R-D, Laquita Lanford. My pronouns are she, her, hers. And my nickname, and as everyone will call me, is Q in my community and in my family. So I'm talking to my family today and my friends, and I'm looking forward to sharing my experience with you all, what my expertise are and how I navigate in my community and just a person of color dealing with housing insecurities. So I was born in Los Angeles, California, and my mother is a young mom when she had me, single mom, and my father is also an immigrant from Central America, they came together. They made magic. They made me. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and we're all grateful. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah, um, I think it would be fun if uh, you don't mind sharing where your dad is from, because most people in the United States here are Central America and have a very particular idea in mind. And I think you're going to surprise them. I will surprise them. And I will say, Jumbro, please. Dun, dun, dun. No, I'm just playing. It's a uh, bleeze. They're from, he's Garifana. And we're from the Garinagu tribe. We go back as far as uh, West Africa. And he came to the United States in the 70s. And they, you know, they crossed my little bitty grandmother, uh, fair skin. They came through the back of Mexico into the United <laughs> States. And she's a warrior. She's 95. So I get that strength. I'm so blessed to be a part of their, their lineage. And then my biological mom, her family were from Texas and it goes back into that context of slavery and like great grandmother and grandmother picked cotton. And my mom said she picked cotton like once when she was a little girl. So yeah, I have a lot of richness in my energy. I just think it's great because it, um, again, I think, you know, part of what we are trying to do is confound stereotypes and conventional narratives. Right. And so mm-hmm particularly this idea of Black immigrants and people who are, you know, descendant of recent immigrants who are Black to the United States and people who are African-American, and then also really raising this question of what does it mean to be from Latin America? 
I know. Um, so mm-hmm. Belize is in a Spanish-speaking former colony. And- it is. Um, I also lived there. I, I went to high school in Central America. They thought they were putting me on a punishment when I went to go live in Belize. <laughs> Man, Belize is gorgeous. <laughs> it, it's beautiful. I didn't understand the beauty back then because I was a teenager. But it actually took me again out of that environment of the chaos in the United States and what have you, or what my dad didn't want to prevent because I went to live with my dad full time. And that's, you know, something that we can touch on. We asked to like, who am I? You know, when my mother had to deal with the narrative around Ronald Reagan being the president and the welfare queen. And, you know, my mom was 15 years old. She got pregnant with me. She had me at 16 years old. Mm -hmm. So like she dropped out of high school. She became a full time mom with what services and we're going to get to like those conversations about services and resources. And there were very little services and resources in the eighties in South central Los Angeles is where we were living at. So, um, but yeah, such a beautiful place. We got our Mayans, we have our Spaniards, we have our Indians. I went to school in a diverse community. And so we'll get to later about like the concept or what, like what villages or community really means to me. And that is that experience that I had as a teenager um, yeah. with living in Central America. Why don't we go ahead and transition some to your adult experiences, either, you know, in work, however you want to define work in homelessness. So during a, a period of time in my, in my life, when I was a kid, we, as I said, I went to live with my dad full time, but uh, my mom was an only child and my grandmother and my great grandmother both passed away. And so you have the single mom at the time. She has three kids. You have the crack era. You have like what happens to black women, black community during that time. And so we became homeless due to like what was going on in her personal life. So so mm-hmm. I lived in a shelter at the age of like nine years old and I lived in a car um, when my mom, mother couldn't pay rent and she didn't really know what to do, I've you know lived in it at a in a, ch- in a church, and so these are all part of like my childhood ex- experiences that led me later on in my life. It's just it's you know like how it comes together full circle, and I remember the social worker that my mom that was was our caseworker. They called it, you know, social worker, a young black woman by the name of Miss White. I'll never forget Miss White because she bought me a, she bought me and my sister, but she brought us Christmas gifts. And she was roughly around my mom's age. And it was the different was at the time when my mom was 22 and she was 22 or 23, Miss White, the social worker, she had an education and my mother did not have an education. And so like she brought the gifts for us. She bought us hula hoops. She brought us hula hoops and she brought us just like a bunch of toys and things like that. So, you know, I had those very on childhood experiences with a system that was actually experimenting on Black women and Latinx women and immigrant women and single, single home. So that's what led me later on, you know, in my life to really get involved. And then just that experience, I would say after I got out of high school, I moved back to the United States and I moved to Portland. So in Portland, um, how did you get engaged in working in homelessness? Well, my very first job at a nonprofit organization was Central City Concern. For those who don't know about Central City Concern, at that time, it was the Portland Portland Alternative Health Clinic. And I okay. was desperately looking for a job. And I 
picked up a newspaper by Pioneer Square Mall, looked on the back of it. It said Central City Concern. I was like, that's just a few blocks away. <laughs> so I dropped off my resume in the rain, no umbrella, asked to speak to whatever supervisor was on site, gave him my resume and asked him if I could have an interview on the spot. And they gave me one. (laughs) (laughs) And so I started working as a medical intake specialist at Central City Concern. And so there is where I met many folks in our community at the time. And that was about 1998, I would say. I was here for a few years. So that was my big girl job. (laughs) <laughs> yeah. First one. I love it. First one. First one. Well, for listeners, um, Central City Concern is, it's definitely one of the, if not the largest, homeless service providers in the Portland region. And they do a lot of work around recovery housing. Mm-hmm. And uh, so then you've also worked at JOIN and at Urban League, correct? Yes. So I worked, and this was coming back. So I lived here for 10 years. I had worked at, I had that experience working with Central City Concern for about two years. And at at that time, I did have a lot of questions. I just didn't have like a mentor or someone that could, like we didn't have the conversations that we do today. I can recall back then where the Black community or African-Americans that were coming for treatment, like it was just a hard time to find a stable place for folks to shelter. It wasn't as openly what we, I wouldn't call it bad, but where our crisis is now in the 21st century, right? So yeah, later on, and that was moving back to Portland. So I lived here for 10 years. I adulted. I thought that I would not come back to Portland. So I really, am I, I really wanted to reconnect with my mom. Um, and that was, and that's what brought me back. But before I moved back to Portland, I was looking for like, just tapping in with housing, like on just, I would say Craigslist is what I could remember and really looking like, wow, Portland rent is expensive. <laughs> and that wasn't the case, like in my, in my expensive mind, because when I left from Portland, it rent was like, my last apartment was 600 and something dollars. And it was like, before folks had moved out and they called it, referred to it as the numbers. I lived on 120th right. in Burnside. And when I got to Portland, I was very like, shocked. There was so much of a change. Yeah. That led me to my own housing insecurity. I came back unhoused, but I didn't come, I didn't come thinking that I wasn't going to find a place to stay or a job or anything like that. So, you know, that would, that would, for me with that return trip, it, I had heard words within a few weeks. I went to Transition Project and a friend of mine said, share with me that there was a resource that was helping folks out for with rental support or to get into an apartment. But it, I found it to be very challenging that I had to wake up at six o'clock in the morning and then go stand in line to like hope that I am chosen for that day to speak to someone about housing. That was just like my very first experience with that being here in Portland. I think that, you know, based on some of the experiences and what you hear people saying, what do you think community members misunderstand or don't get about homelessness? The misconceptions around is that a person is not willing to do the work for themselves. That's not always necessary. That wasn't the case for myself. Like my life changed within 10 years or not just being here. I also was diagnosed with multiple sclerosis in 2010. I was living in San Diego. I was making pretty decent money to be able to afford the rent in San Diego. And after living in Portland for 10 years and having that be in my first apartment and those experiences, I thought paying 800 or close to $900 was ridiculous. 
I'm like, who pays this amount of money for rent just to stay somewhere? But yeah, I feel like that's a misconception that folks get is that, you know, we don't, we oftentimes, and I believe from 2020, we now realize a lot more of what's been going on over the last 30, 40 years, which have led us to many of these conversations and spaces in which we are in right now. This is one of my issues that comes up that pisses me off the most. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I just know so many people who work their asses off and are are killing themselves and dealing with stuff that, I mean, I can never imagine. Mm-hmm. And yet I meet people like you and tons of people who are in community who are just like up there and doing stuff all the time. It angers me and pains me to even imagine that someone would pass that judgment on people. And it goes back to sharing my story. You know, most people that I've met in my life for during this work, they have had similar situations where they were they were homeless as a child because of a system that is broken, that took us out of the household. And sometimes you just never recover from that because it's been a part of your life, whole life. But I've seen a two-parent home by living with my father and his wife and them having stability, but they also worked their asses off because they were both immigrants from another country. Although they have their citizenship, like they didn't qualify for many of those services and they stayed under the radar. That was just like how they, although they were doing all the right things, my dad is a homeowner, but it was a locked in on a 30 year deal. I think my dad like just paid his house off when he's back home in Belize, he built his house before he paid his house off in America. So that's capitalism. Those are things that you learn. I, I believe that it's a lot to do with our experiences and what get us to certain places in our life and the criminal justice system and addiction and different things that people go through and the change and the shift can miss so much time being incarcerated. You come back to a society and you're unable to navigate all of these new changes yep. without getting the, the handbook. And you have immediately transitioned into my next question, which is about these disparate rates of housing insecurity and homelessness we see for BIPOC in general, but Black people in particular. And it is this kind of, the systems are creating these outcomes. How in the world are we ever supposed to get out of this? And so you've kind of hit on the three systems that I always talk about, which is the housing system, aka capitalism, healthcare, Mm -hmm. and the criminal justice system. So I think you've talked a little bit about how this has shown up for you personally. And I'm wondering if you have any um, observations from the work you've been doing up till now with people in Portland about how those things are showing up. You mentioned about my work experience over at the Urban League of Portland. They've been a nonprofit organization. They're a part of a national a national movement of the civil rights movement from 1945. And they've been here in Portland, Oregon. And so as I have been exploring and connecting more of not just my blackness, but you know where I wanted to light that energy when I started to see how are the disparities and displacement of black folks in America begin. And I thought that that would be a great organization that I can grow with professionally and community wise. My role was to uh, be support to those folks at the new shelters or Dignity Village. What did you really see as some of the major causes of homelessness for them, either causing them to end up homeless or preventing them from exiting homelessness? You know, what was really giving rise to those folks to end up in this situation and what parts of the system were really getting in their way from exiting? 
you know, the displacement learning from uh, my relationship, my new, new relationship at the Urban League of Portland of what the displacement and the Black community, where it was a center for the Black community, and just really much learning. And when that displacement happened and that gentrification, it really just shook up a lot of people's systems. And so that, I feel, is where we come in with the conversations that we're having today about the what, the who, the when, and the government, right? We're speaking of historical disparities in these systems. I mean, I only can recall maybe three times that I've actually had really good, if we call it good, health care. Oftentimes for Black and brown folks, we are not informed or properly educated about 401k and medical and how to choose. And we look at, I know for myself, I look at, wow, you're going to take more money out of my check. I'm barely getting, you know, this amount of money to go into this. What? And I don't understand. So we come in with, with being behind. And what I was experiencing, I want to say some of my very first clients or, you know, I didn't like to call them clients, but the folks that I worked with, they were either coming from the criminal justice system. They were descendants of folks who lived in Northeast Portland. You know, since it's a Black organization, then we support mostly Black community. Um, Or there were folks who had moved here, like I said, and didn't properly get settled in, had a job, and then something happened. So we're always falling through the crack. And then once we fall through the crack, then that just like spirals downwards. Yeah, I think that, um, you know, I try to talk about homelessness as the the summation of all of our massive systemic failures. And since racism is an integral foundation of the country, of course, we're going to see massive disparities in homelessness. But I think mm-hmm. the way that you even talk about this is really important because You know, when you ask a white person, how did we end up in this crisis? Their response to that is very recent time-wise. Like they might Mm -hmm. go back to the 1980s. But Mm -hmm. if you talk to a person of color and particularly multi-generation, Black, Indigenous, Latino, and Asian community members, our response is historical. We understand that this is rooted in the beginning. Mm-hmm. And the other thing I think you're getting at is that, that again, a person who's white, if I ask what's going on with homelessness, they would not reference displacement first and foremost. Whereas mm-hmm. I think that that story is so fundamental, the experience of Black Portlanders, but also Black people across the country. Absolutely. But- and across the globe, right? Yes. Like just being... Again, my father, they're like when you're taken out of your natural environment or your community, you have to learn, relearn something and try to fit in. And so we've been in America against our will or we've been in America for what they said is a land and opportunity. And the opportunities are we are there's a slavery. There's that history because that's our reference of like what our people generationally have been through for me to have gotten to this point in the 21st century to sit here on a pot and like, and be a part of a podcast so that we can share our own stories and our right. own connections, because we have been told one narrative, white people, they have to study. They got to go, you know, like <laughs> I got to get in the book and they go by the book. And sometimes going by the book is not. This it, is those stories. Yeah. 
Yeah. And so they want to experience something. So now there's this hype about like this, this trending, you know, uprise of a movement. And we're seeing more whites involved in these movements because they, again, identity. Again, we know who we come, we know who we are. We know where we come from. And we oftentimes really know where we want to go if we are allowed. But when there's barriers and breaks within where we can and cannot go, it starts to affect your mental health. So over the years, as I've gotten older, you know, I've had some experience with just life in general. Yeah. And becoming an advocate and, you know, working towards policy from those experiences that I had with meeting so many people. I've probably met, oh, I can't imagine, you know, the numbers because of the work that I also created my own lane, so to speak, Mm -hmm. um, because of the information that I was sitting in on and was very disturbed. Like, why are we not doing the alternative shelters or sheltering for Black folks that didn't feel comfortable, you know, when we're seeing the disparities, even within locally in the system of the shelter system, if a Black person, and this was mostly Black, I have not had a lot of experiences with other, other ethnicity groups, with their experience of being kicked out of a shelter and being kicked out for six months. And if you're kicked out for six months, where are you going to go when you don't really have anywhere, you don't have anywhere to go to begin with. And this is through one of our local system, which is another, they get a lot of funding from the government. So it's like, again, like folks who are social workers and what, like I shared my experience of the first social worker that I've ever encountered in my life, she was black. And it makes a huge difference. And it makes a huge difference. And it made a huge difference. Even with the relationship with my mom and her, it made a huge difference. Well, so maybe this is a great way to start talking about the um, idea around the Afro village, right? Mm -hmm. So this idea of, I'm wondering if you could explain for our listeners what alternative shelter is in your mind. Alternative shelters, from what I've learned, my first experience or exposure was right to dream. I thought that was a really great idea or a concept around where people can stop in. And then I got to know the different leaderships that cultivated that idea and like all that it took. And so one of my first clients, young man that had spent 10 years in prison, originally from Portland, Oregon, was he fell under the measure 11. Again, that is something that I totally disagree with. And a part of that three strike, again, when we speak about government, what's happening on the West Coast, Oregon took that up, called it one thing and to crucify the young black man. Yep. Because it was, it's a specific three strikes and you're out. And but you're the out. things that are considered strikes are uniquely experienced by communities of color. So he had showed up at the league. And I was very new in this position. It was a new position, but it also had a lot of flexibility with the fundings. And so I was just getting to know the team, but I had already had people in mind to get them in housing like right away. Folks were living in their car outside of the Urban League of Portland, young Black men. And it's just like, it. I think about those as my younger brothers or nephews or just like young men that are in a situation because of family, you know, like, or moved here for school and their relationship and it didn't work out. So anyway, I had him meet me at Right to Dream. We had a conversation. There's an expectation as well, also to build a relationship with somebody overnight, like having somebody open up to you from being traumatized. He didn't come to the Urban League for housing. He came for a job that day. 
it just, it touched my heart. You know, I had to be in spaces that really like, oh, it brought up a lot of, you know, trauma from myself of remembrance of what, you know, this whole system uh, does to, to, to my people, to my community. And so that's where the alternatives, we made our way around it. And it took me about like, he disappeared, he came back, what have you, but I got him into housing, um, got his first apartment out of being incarcerated for 10 years. Wow. And I mean, even before that, he didn't feel comfortable at the time. You know, we had folks living in tents because he had been incarcerated. He had preferred to be alone and not in big groups. He didn't have a phone. I bought him a phone. Just certain things happened. He felt he just couldn't believe that this was really happening for him so quickly. And it made him it actually made him nervous. Right. And. And then I had other young black men and young and folks as well. And so I started to create some thoughts in my my idea. I like house people in the first week. I housed in six months, 75 people. And they were just like, how are you doing this? I just thought about what I would want in a housing. So, you know, what in any alternative situation. I was gathering a lot of information and I would tell you, I would come home at night, but he said, and have like this puzzle pieces laid all over the floor, like, and I, on my wall, like, okay, this is going to go with this. This is going to go with this. And this is how I'm going to work this out. This is a great way to start talking about the um, a- idea around the Afro village. So besides the interaction with that person and other folks, Black women are, you know, at the center of my heart. I met this Black woman. And you asked about the misconception. You yep. know, it's not sometimes that folks don't even have a... You know, they have, whether it's education or past experience, it's just the day and time that we are living in. You know, some people who have experienced trauma throughout their lives or injuries to their body become disabled and then they're on Social Security and all they get is a check for less than $800 and rent is $1,000. $1,200. There's no way that they could possibly ever save up enough money. So they get discouraged and they get distracted. And so I had a woman that like, we, it always would catch me. They always, like my coworkers would say, oh, come back on Mondays because those were my office hours. And then I get invested very quickly into a I'm person's shocked. situation. <laughs> and like, what can I do? Not so much to help or wanted to be that savior, But I also was listening to other things that were going to be up and coming in the city. And with that whole movement around right to dream and what they were, they had plans to do. They actually got displaced from that area because it wasn't a long term situation. And then their second. And so I started to explore. I ran into um, Brother Ibrahim Ubarak, who also was one of the founders of, of Right to Dream. And so he had invited me to be a part of their board in several conversations. And then we just like, I love his energy and he became my mentor and I followed him around in 2019. And there was a little bit of funding and some work to support around rest and safe areas. And so I got to explore more information and we went to this really huge conference in in, in Los Angeles at UCLA and it just like opened and I'm just like, this is what I'm going to do. This is what I'm going to work on. And so I felt like a a lost child trying to find my place through, you know, again, through all of this. And I have a really good friend, uh, Kurt Rhea, Rhea, who works with City Repair, that we became friends through Urban League or community. Another amazing 
friend of mine and colleague, and I love Todd Ferry. We, uh, he works at Portland State University as well, and we ran into each other at an event. And also, uh, Marta, um, an architect and designer, and I uh, had some other friends and community members who are farmers. And so I thought about workforce housing and I met this other person and I just wanted to build that one tiny home for that woman that I met in 2018 uh, um, because she expressed about it being able to move. She can still pay something for. So it was just those sort of things, a bunch of stuff ping ponging to led me to referring to this village as an Afro-Indigenous space for Black women, femmes, and queer women, queer folks, and those formerly incarcerated. So a lot has evolved with the Afro-Village's idea to a concept of me also becoming a researcher through this movement of alternative and um, sheltering, working with my friends at Portland State University, <laughs> the homeless, shout out to the homeless, research, action, collaborative. I'm just going to say that I think that, that the discussion of the, the village really just brings everything you're saying full circle, right? It's mm-hmm. the idea of healing from the multi-generational trauma that is inflicted upon Black people Mm-hmm. Because of the racism and the way that all of the systems have continued to perpetuate violence against people mm-hmm. who are Black. And so, you know, it's that healing, it's having space in place, right? And so mm-hmm. for listeners who aren't as familiar with the displacement history and the legacy of racism against Black people in Oregon, I would definitely suggest checking out contemporary work by Lisa Bates, who's done some really amazing work. Mm -hmm. around displacement and gentrification. Karen Gibson um, wrote a wonderful article on Bleeding Albina about one of the episodes of displacement from many years ago. And then, of course, Walida. I actually Mm -hmm. don't remember Walida's last name because I think she's like Oprah to me. She doesn't need a last name. (laughs) name. I did. Her first name, right? But Walida's brilliant. And she can break down racism in Oregon like nobody's business. Mm -hmm. And she's got tons of great stuff. Because I think there's also, you know, it's what the the village is doing. It's this idea. I always think about it when you talk about it, kind of like having a bubble, Mm -hmm. like a bubble space in the city that's protective Mm -hmm. and healing and nurturing for people who are Black. Mm -hmm. And also from, you know, just what the work I was going to mention, the pandemic, you know, that racial, racial equity uh, in housing and also uh, Marta, uh, who I met. Oh, I'm so grateful that we met. She's amazing. She's amazing. Um, An architect and designer. We had a conversation the week, the the Monday before we, before we went into shit to lock in and we've been meeting ever since then. And she kind of helped me with that first idea. Like, okay. So the, after Portland, after the classes ended, it was like, well, what's next? I wanted to continue. I had energy. I created a market space for storytelling um, and products and services and things like that to raise money and funds. And then I was able to shift that over into that exhibit and then what me living in Old Town, Chinatown, came up with Old Town Fresh. We got invited to um, for a design for a reuse of a, a train cart mm-hmm. um, here in Portland. And so we, with Martha and I, we came up with the Afro Village on the Movement. 
It's amazing stuff. And for all of our listeners, we um, are going to have links to all of Laquita's work and the ideas and the plans. And of course, a link if you want to make a wonderful contribution to help support Laquita's work. Um, And yeah, if you want to take Laquita out for a a meal at the radio room once we're open from COVID, definitely let me know and I'll hook you up. Uh, Laquita is an amazing human being and always a delight to talk to. Um, well, Laquita, thank you so much for your time today. As always, I learn so much from you about your life and your experiences and how you're thinking about things. And I know everybody listening will really appreciate everything you've had to say today. All right. Thank, thank you so you. much. Talk to you later, friend. That was Laquita Lamford, the lead visionary of the Afro Village movement in Portland. You can follow the project on Facebook at Afro Village PDX Project or go to her website, www.afrovillagepdx.org, where you can find out more about the project and how to donate. Thank you for joining us.